the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And as always, over the recent months, we're talking about COVID-19. And tonight, we're going to go right to the horse's mouth, I suppose, and that is the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. And it's communications officer, Kevin Brennan, who's going to answer our questions. Kevin, thank you for joining us tonight. Sure, Nick. Thank you for having me. Uh, COVID-19, I think for most of us, whether it's health reasons or economic reasons, uh, the news and our thoughts are dominated by COVID-19. Let me ask a general question. How are we doing here in Cuyahoga County with COVID-19? Well, I'll tell you, Nick, during the pandemic, we had our peak in terms of number of cases for the week ending May 29th when we had 484 cases. Uh, We have since seen a subsequent drop for three consecutive weeks down to a low of 237 new cases for the week ending June 19th. Uh, But I will say that I believe we are going to see a substantial increase for the week ending the 26th of June. So although we've seen a nice run here, I believe we're going to start to go the other way a little bit. Now, in the media, we've been hearing uh, two factors related to that belief. Factor number one, more testing. Factor number two, uh, younger demographics are are feeling more confident that um, they're letting down their guard to a degree, and there's there's more uh, spread, maybe, at least in the southern states. And uh, we don't know what's going to happen here in Cuyahoga County yet, but if we follow the rest of the country... Uh, the younger people may be driving up the numbers a bit. Uh, how much of that is accurate, do you think? Well, I don't know that we – I think we'll find out a, a lot more about that with this new report that's going to come out here for that week ending the 26th of June uh, because I think what we're going to have is an addition, uh, as I said, an influx of cases, and we're going to have some demographic information about who those people are. So I can't really speak to that prematurely, but I certainly wouldn't discount that. I would say anecdotally. Um, as for those of us who are paying attention, when we walk around, I think the last week or two, and we see people in the stores or on the streets or wherever we're going, um, I know I've observed a lot less people wearing masks uh, and, and practicing social distancing. So, you know, we may be able to certainly contribute that to a rise in cases. I think, as I say, it's a little premature to make that assumption, but I think that's a, a logical way to think at this point. Uh, everything we do is based on a risk-benefit analysis in our minds, even though we don't call it that. When we walk into a supermarket or we walk onto a beach or we walk into a closed restaurant with a bunch of strangers, um, and, and we've heard by this point in time, we all know about masks, and masks do provide another barrier. Uh, but how, when I see people without masks, how dangerous actually is that, and, and what, what should I do about it? Well, I think what what we're seeing is um, we're seeing uh, information coming from the National Institutes of Health, 
uh, from the Centers for Disease Control that indicate that masks are an effective way of prevention, uh, of, of preventing transmission, rather. And I think, you know, back in the, the early stages of the pandemic, when we were told not to really wear masks and make sure that we save them, um, that was done largely with the intent of trying to protect the frontline workers, the people who are taking care of the people who are ill. Now that the tide has turned a bit and there's more PPE available, obviously the messaging is to recommend everybody to do that. And we think that, along with social distancing, are probably two of the safest things that we can do uh, because we don't have a vaccine. We don't have antivirals. So these physical measures that we can take uh, are the best thing that we can do right now. Well, we say that uh, there's no vaccine. Of course, they're working on a vaccine, and, and this virus now has been around maybe as early as December in China and working its way over. Uh, is there any word as to whether it's mutating in any way or becoming less uh, lethal or uh, any changes from what we've been seeing over the months? Well, we are seeing some articles that say that there is the fear that it will mutate. Um, and for, for, to, make an, to make an analogy, when we talk about something like norovirus, which is that, that lower and upper GI distress that you get, um, you know, that's a virus that reacts differently in everybody in which it inhabits. So you and I, Nick, could both have norovirus, and you could be asymptomatic, right, not showing any symptoms, and I could be very ill. Or you could get a mild version of it, maybe be sick a day or two, and I could be sick for a week. So we see that in, in some viruses now. And I think with uh, COVID-19, what we're seeing is there are a large number of people who can be asymptomatic. Again, to refer to data that we've seen from the National Institutes of Health, three or four out of every 10 people can be asymptomatic. And I think that's very dangerous. And so when we talk about that younger demographic, um, even though those people, uh, to speak to them as a group, the younger people, if they're not becoming ill, the chances are that they could be infected and be asymptomatic and then be transmitting that to people who are more susceptible. And what we worry about is, you know, younger people endangering older people, particularly older people who are immunocompromised. Because as we know, when we look at people who are senior citizens or in nursing homes or long-term care facilities, very often they have other illnesses and what's being commonly referred to now, I think, during the pandemic as underlying conditions, right? Other health issues right. make your immune system weaker than it normally would be. So COVID-19 obviously has a better chance of really getting into your body and causing some damage the less, you know, the less enhanced your immune system is. So when we talk about the younger demographic, this this ability to kind of be a mule and carry it to the older population, it's very scary. Uh, let me know if anything has changed since the beginning of this back in March when we said, wash your hands frequently, don't touch your face, keep social distancing, and wear a mask when you're out in public. Has any of that changed? Not at all. And I think the other thing we would add to that would be make sure that you're cleaning and disinfecting commonly touched surfaces. Um, computer keyboards, countertops, doorknobs, telephones, things like that. Um, you know, because I think what we see is uh, we've seen, I think anybody who's been watching the news for during the pandemic knows that we've had an awful lot of fatalities in the um, nursing home community. And again, it's because a lot of those people, you know, are immunocompromised, as I just described, but it's also because they're congregate living facilities. There are often common areas where people congregate and where people pass through or where people eat together or recreate together, whatever they do. Now, a lot of those activities have been limited or suspended during the pandemic, 
But the point is, the more people you have under one roof, the more uh, opportunity you have for transmission. So, you know, that's, that's again, that's a, that's a difficult situation for people who are, uh, you know, taking care of institutions like correctional facilities, homeless shelters, assisted living, nursing homes, group homes. Those are very difficult situations because of the transmission. So when we talk about limiting mass gatherings for people who are not in those environments, right, that's the reason why. That's the reason why we don't want more than 10 people together because the chances just exponentially grow for transmission. When you talk about congregate living, it reminds me of the prison down in Marion, Ohio, where we had a large spike one week as uh, nearly 2,000 inmates were uh, testing uh, positive. I think that was a high, high number. Well, the question is, with that contained group, with that almost a control group, almost an experimental group, have we learned anything about the spread of COVID-19 and how uh, frequent it is that people do have symptoms and serious symptoms or light symptoms? Well, you know, that since that didn't happen in our county, I'm not, um, you know, privy to the details of that particular situation, but I can tell you just in terms of working at the Board of Health and how we deal with communicable disease, COVID-19 is another communicable disease. I mean, we do, we deal with it all the time with uh, influenza, norovirus, salmonella, scabies, mumps, measles, all of these, all of these contagious diseases, you know, we see that when, when we get people closer together, when we don't distance them, when we don't have a vaccine available, when we aren't limiting person-to-person contact, these diseases can spread very easily. I mean, even in certainly in non-pandemic times, we have foodborne illness outbreaks that we investigate regularly. Um, we have, again, because they're congregate living facilities, we have outbreaks uh, of illness in places like nursing homes and, and correctional facilities. So the fact that this has spread so quickly and in such an environment like a correctional facility, uh, it's not unusual to us in public health at all. This is just a reflection of what we've known for decades, is that we've got to be very vigilant in separating ill people from those who are healthy, right? And so that's the whole idea of it behind people becoming isolated and quarantined when they either are confirmed as a case or have been exposed to a confirmed case or a probable case, right? The idea is to separate you so that you don't infect other people. So unfortunately, you know, as I said, I can't speak to the details, but when you have that many people under one roof and and they're confined such as they are, it it frankly isn't surprising. Well, we're going to take a break in in about a half minute here, but uh, we're going to come back. We're going to be talking to the um, chief communications officer for the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, Kevin Brennan, asking questions about how safe are we when we practice these precautions such as washing hands uh, and not touching your face, your eyes, your nose, and that kind of thing. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to have some better insight as to what we can do outside of our homes nowadays. So we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here with Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. I'm the advocate. We're going to be back after these words, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're very pleased to have with us tonight Kevin Brennan. He's from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. He's the communications officer, and he's answering all of our questions we have about COVID-19 and and where we are. And uh, during the break, uh, Kevin, we were talking about uh, some things with regard to tracking 
and uh, how we're doing in Cuyahoga County by reporting how many active cases we have. People can go online and take a look at the county map broken by zip code. Uh, and what does that tell us? What does it what doesn't it tell us? Well, what it does tell us, Nick, is it tells us the physical address of the person who is a confirmed or probable case of COVID-19. So what it does not tell us is where they have contracted that illness. So um, as you can imagine, with, with the way that our, our region here in Northeastern Ohio is configured, um, there are people that live in Lorain County that work in Cuyahoga. There are people that work in Cuyahoga and live in Geauga, right? So what right, it will right. tell you is, so, so if the possibility is if you work in Cleveland and then you live in Geauga, Geauga County Health Department is going to be the health department that tracks your case. It won't be our county. It'll be the county in which you live. So this number does give us some information, but it is incomplete. And then the other part of it is, it, as I said, it doesn't tell us where people contracted the illness. Um, so, so there is quite a bit of, of information that we aren't able to derive and place directly into this map. So it gives us a little bit of information, but I don't know that it gives us possibly the complete picture that, that people may think that it does. I, I think that most people who are uh, definitely evaluating the risk of being out in public, being out of their house, and they're masking up when appropriate. Uh, and let me be real quick about the masking. Uh, the, the masks are intended to keep the person who's wearing the mask from spreading it just in case they happen to be an asymptomatic carrier. Is that accurate or is that incorrect in any way? Well, that's true because the presumption would be that if someone is symptomatic and they've been tested, then they would not be out in public and they would be at home in isolation. So that, that, that would be the way we would look at it. Um, yes, so, the, so without a vaccine, what we hope is that everyone would wear a mask because then we're all doing our best to prevent everyone else from getting it from us. So the, so the mindset that we like to say is, you know, from a, from a transmission standpoint, we want people to act as if they have it and they don't want to give it to other people. And, that, and thus is the mask, right? The mask is the best method of prevention that we have for that right now. Now, now switching over to the economics a little bit, going to the local grocery store. Uh, we, we were talking off the air about how in some jurisdictions uh, there's a frequent report as to how many active cases there are by community. Are we able to identify here in Cuyahoga County how many reported active cases we have yet? Or are these all cumulative well, numbers uh, only? Yes, we do have a, a total that we update daily on our website at ccbh.net. And what it shows is a total number of confirmed cases, a total number of probable cases, and then the total of those two. And then it does the same thing for fatalities. So it shows us how many people have died in our jurisdiction, um, how many deaths we have yet to confirm. And then also, on an encouraging note, it shows us a number of cleared cases. So these are people who have gone through the period of recovery, um, have, have come out on the other side, have not had, uh, you know, a, an unfortunate outcome. And these are people that are living their lives as normally as the rest of us as possible right now. So whether they're going back to work, they're staying at home, whatever they're doing, they've gotten over uh, their period of illness with COVID-19. So right now in Cuyahoga County, we have, as of today, we have 4,236 total cases, 280 deaths, and 1,683 cleared cases or people who have recovered. 
Is there a way we could tell by community how many active cases uh, you guys are tracking? I say you guys, the Board of Health, are tracking at any given time. Do, do you have that number available, or does it get made available to people? Well, it's not a number that we make available publicly, Nick, and I'll tell you why. Um, in some instances, we have communities where the numbers are very small, right? So what we worry about is protecting patient privacy. So if we have a very close-knit small community where we only have a handful of people who have gone to the hospital or who have become ill or who may have unfortunately passed away, and people notice that, you know, the, the EMS came to this house or this person has been out for a while or we've seen a lot of activity and now we don't at this house, we really don't want to give that information out on a neighborhood level because we think it really compromises the privacy of individuals. Um, and, and I think that, on the other hand, too, we don't want to create a false sense of security for people. We want people to remain vigilant in wearing masks and social distancing. And we feel like if somebody looks at it just for instance and says, well, there are 100 cases in my community, but there are 10,000 people that live here. So that's a really small percentage. Well, what that does, too, is that number only tells you what, what that total was at the end of the previous week. It doesn't tell you what it is today. And we know that as quickly as this illness can spread, you know, that number is ever-changing. So we feel in terms of patient privacy and accuracy, that's not a, a, the type of information that we would care to give out. Uh, even I know in the jurisdictions where they do give out, give out that information, uh, it tends to lower the anxiety levels of the residents. Uh, has there been any thought on the anxiety levels that people have without knowing whether you have a 1,000 cases or 100 cases in your local area, and meaning municipality. Sure. Well, and I think I think just as you just said, if the number's low, it, people sort of relax and get a little less anxious. Conversely, if the number's high, then it can create, you know, a lot of, I don't want to say unnecessary, but, you know, a lot more, a lot more anxiety. So, you know, we feel that being absolute with things is just not the best method to take because of all these other variables, you know. Uh, I, I think the message across the county is that we'd like everyone to remain vigilant and be as active as they can regardless of where they live. So we're all practicing those same kind of kind of safety measures. Because I think we saw that with the Governor DeWine and former Health Director Dr. Acton being so proactive early with preventive measures, that kept our numbers down, and we've done much better as a state than many others across the country. So I think now what we don't want to do is get relaxed and think that it's over and then our numbers start to go back up and then we're in, you know, a more precarious situation. Well, what's the best thing we can say to the general public as to why they should not let their, their guard down and continue? Because apparently we've been doing relatively well. You know, we're still in a risky situation but doing fairly well. Uh, what, what do you want to say to the general public as to why they should continue to maintain vigilance well, I think, first of all, what we want to convey to people is that none of what we're doing is meant to impede anybody's personal freedoms or liberties. What we're trying to do is give you the best and the most sound health advice that we can give you. We know that these preventive measures work, so we would ask for people to be patient and let the process, you know, kind of take hold and run its course. Uh, I think what we're seeing is in other states across the country where they may have not been as deliberate as Ohio in slowing the opening and the reopening of, of business, because <clears throat> in Ohio we're doing it sector by sector. In other places they've sort of opened it widely. They're not mandating social distancing or masks or anything. 
and we're seeing negative results. We're seeing, you know, the results that we don't want to see in some of those areas. So I think it's very clear that without a vaccine, that the masks and the social distancing are the two best practices we can take, we can take right now, along with what you mentioned earlier, Nick, washing our hands, cleaning commonly touched surfaces, um, trying to, you know, go out and making sure that we're fully protected. We don't want to become relaxed because I think we're seeing negative impact from that nationwide. And, you know, as we say, in the coming weeks here, in the next couple of weeks, we'll see if that's also what we're experiencing here in Ohio. Well, it'll be interesting seeing uh, how that works. I know we just have a little time. I just have about a minute. But uh, the Board of Health, I think you mentioned earlier on, uh, they do a normal thing of tracing and tracking with communicable diseases, which is a normal part of your job. Uh, and uh, with regard to this, how safe should we feel if we don't know anybody who has COVID-19? Uh, can we meet with friends and family, or how safe is it in 30 well, seconds? Well, we, <laughs> we only know from, you know, we only know as far as if someone's been tested, we only know where they were that day, Right. So if you're in right. a family and none of you have COVID-19 and you're all feeling healthy, then do the right thing and wear masks and maintain social distance and clean hands and such to make sure that you're protecting that the integrity of that good health. Right? I think when you start to relax, that's when it can, can go wrong. And I think the problem, as we mentioned earlier, is the asymptomatic carriers. If you don't know you have it, it's not like flu, right? You don't have the symptoms always. So if you don't know you have it, you have to be extra careful to make sure that you're protecting other people. Well, a topic that I'm sure we're going to be talking about for months to come. Uh, Kevin Brennan, a Communications Officer for the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, thank you for joining us tonight. Hope to have you on again uh, maybe in another month or so. Get an update. Sure, Nick. I appreciate the invitation for today, and we'd be glad to come back on. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, as we're trying to get to COVID-19, uh, we have to get back to business in a very, very safe way. And one of the things we need to do is catch up on our, our medical and dental requirements. With us tonight, Dr. Carl Hedgie, one of our sponsors here at uh, The Advocate, is going to talk to us about uh, the COVID-19 world and going to the dentist. Carl, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Nick. I hope I hope it's helpful for your listeners. Oh, I'm sure it will be because uh, everyone's been sort of locked down and we're slowly unlocking and starting to get out into the world. And uh, we want to get out there besides just taking care of business and our routine uh, medical and dental needs, but we want to do it safely. Uh, tell me, uh, yeah, Carl, how has the COVID-19 requirements affected the dental practice? Well, what do you have to do? now to comply with safety standards so people don't get uh, pick up COVID-19 when they come to see a dentist? Well, I think really an interesting thing to understand about this is, is that dentistry was not shut down because of the risk either to the patients from us or of the patients to us. Um, the reason it was shut down was just because of the concern for just this mass flow of, of, of COVID-19 patients into the hospitals and that we were consuming, you know, some of the PPP 
PPE equipment, you know, the personal right. protective equipment. And that's really the reason we were shut down. Um, and it wasn't, you know, for our safety or the safety of the patients. It was just to make sure we didn't run out of supplies for the hospitals when they were more needed. You know, I think another thing that's important to understand is that we've been, you know, we're dealing in the oral cavity. We have been uh, under scrutiny for a number of other diseases that are really much more deadly, much more threatening. Uh, going back into the 90s, that includes everything from hepatitis to HIV to tuberculosis. So we have had standards that have been established by um, the, the, the CDC, by the American Dental Association, that we've been incorporating really since the 1980s even. That, and so really, we, we really have incorporated a lot more things as much as anything else, just to help patients feel more comfortable, you know. But the thing to understand is that that you know most dentists now, if they're following even previous regulations, you know, they're really quite safe. But having said that, we have incorporated a lot of new things, both for the comfort of our our, our patients as well as our staff. You know, we want to make sure everybody everybody is really comfortable with doing what needs to be done. Well, very good because uh, since March, with COVID nineteen. What we've been listening to, and I mean we, the general public, we've been listening to how terrifying this is. If you get it, it's almost a death sentence. So I think everybody has been tuned up to such a high pitch. Uh, I don't think we stop and think about the fact that um, a practice, like a dental practice, has been dealing with uh, communicable diseases for years. And uh, with that, is there anything else? We still know that the virus is a very, very serious virus, if you get it. Uh, in your practice, have you seen many people around with it? No, I have yet, interestingly, I have yet to, fortunately, I've been very blessed. No one, no one that I know, no friends, no relatives have contact, contracted it. Also kind of interesting, to my knowledge, there hasn't been a single case of a dentist acquiring uh, COVID infection in a dental office or of having spread it in a, in a dental office. And I could be wrong. I mean, it, but it, it's the kind of thing in our community, if something happens, like there was a case back in the HIV period when a dentist out in California somewhere contracted HIV, and it was all over the place. So something, it's one of those things where if you're not hearing anything in our, in our you know, from the American Dental Association and from our, 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 our boards and things, we're pretty safe to say that no one, to our knowledge at least, has really been affected by this within a dental environment. So that's a reassuring thing. That's very reassuring to us. Now, now I noticed that you sent over to me a uh, list of, uh, or at least a copy of your policy on dealing with the different uh, types of risk situations when someone yeah. comes to a dental office. And, and I would assume that the same list of risk applies whether it's COVID-19 or the flu or even the common cold. Uh, but uh, what if just for our educational purposes, what are these different risks that people are going into when they go into a dental office? Well, I think the, the biggest risk in a dental office is because, as we know, the, the COVID-19 virus is transmitted through aerosol, through uh, you know, basically saliva, and obviously we work in the world of saliva. And certain you procedures sure do. that we do, yeah, certain procedures that we do tend to aerosolize that, which basically means, you know, it, it, it causes it to, to fume up into the air even though you can't see it. And so those procedures typically involve in a dental office, if you're having your teeth cleaned, you know, we, we love to use our ultrasonic units and we have these little, like, little, little mini sandblasters that uh, do a wonderful job at removing stain. And those, unfortunately, really cause a, a, a very high introduction of, of whatever's in the patient's mouth into the environment. And so we have stopped doing that. We've gone back to the old-fashioned way of just using a, a little round cup and, you know, hand instruments. 
Also, we understand that when we use like a high-speed handpiece, and that would be like the drill people would normally think of for like drilling fillings and, you know, drilling crowns and things, that that has the... So when we do those procedures, because certainly we still need to incorporate those, we need to um, take on extra protection. And so what we've done, you know, I feel like sometimes when we go in to do a simple little filling, we almost look like we're going in there to do open-heart surgery. You know, it's like patients are like, you know, wow, because, you know, you have your gowns on, you have your face mask on, you have your head coverings on. But we've we've incorporated um, air purification systems that that are able to purify the air immediately around the patient and also kill the bacteria. We're also using a number of of, um, things. Interestingly, one of the products that I became aware of just recently, which is very interesting, is a, a, a substance called hypochlorous acid. It's a, and it's a, it's a, basically it's a very weak acid, and we're using it in a fogger. And like you know, like you use for fogging uh, bugs on, on in our vegetable gardens and things. And it's an extremely right. um, effective antibacterial and antiviral agent, yet it's completely non-toxic. It's very safe to use. I mean, it, it, it's, so we're incorporating, interestingly, even though we should have maybe been doing these things before, this has kind of prompted us to do things that maybe we should have been doing before. So it's, it's actually been a very good kind of a blessing in disguise for us. I think it's kind of, you know, we're, we're trying to find the, those, those products that are very safe, very easy, and economical to use, and we found some good ones. Well, when someone comes into the dental office now, what will they see that's different? Uh, will there be people waiting in the waiting room or... Good, good uh, question. That's it. Right. Uh, and every office is going to be a little bit different. The recommendation is that patient, only patients are allowed into the office. And in my office, they actually wait in their car. And fortunately, my parking lot for my office is immediately outside of my office. And so when they get to the office, they will call in. Donna, my office uh, manager, will call them into the office, let them in. She will immediately ask them a series of questions, kind of like if you've gone to your doctor or to a hospital, they, the standard questions, if you've, have you been around anyone with COVID? Have you had a cough? Have you lost your appetite? Or all these questions. And then we take their temperature, and then we take them immediately into the treatment rooms. So there's, there basically there is no one in the, um, in the reception area or the waiting room anymore. It's just kind of a, an empty room now. Just sort of a pass-through as they come in. and right Exactly, exactly. But they'll also see, you know, we, we put up, I'm sure your your uh, listeners have seen that at most grocery stores they have the the barriers, the, the plexiglass barriers. So those are all put also put up between the entranceway. And so whenever the patient is dealing even with the front desk with with the uh, receptionist, that there's a, a physical barrier between them and her. And so uh, those are the things that would look visibly different. And other other things, just the things like you know the air purifiers being around, the fogging going on, and things like that. So there's nothing alarming. It's it's just a little bit different. For the workers uh, in the office, uh, does it seem much different to them, or are they all uh, accustomed now to to what's going on with the higher uh, sensitivity toward transmission of of, of virus? Well, well, you know, one of the most important things for me, you know, during this time that we were off was was creating, you know, getting things, products, uh, procedures that would make everyone feel comfortable, including the staff. We have now been back since last Tuesday, so we're in our second week. And, you know, the first couple of days, few days, we're kind of stumbling around and we're, you know, where, how do, what do we do with this? What do we do with that? But we're in our second week now, and it's almost like this has almost become our new normal. And, um, you know, one of the great things is that the, the staff members, they really are really comfortable because they know how hard we're trying. And we're all, you know, if they have any concerns, if they have anything they want, they get it. So 
fortunately, they're very comfortable with what we are doing. And now we're kind of getting used to the little routine, the different routines of, you know, not having two patients in at the same time and all those little things, the little things we had to work out. So they're, they're doing really well. And I have such a great staff, though. And um, so, no, I'm very blessed, and we're doing, they're doing really well. So using the level of personal protection equipment and the sanitation, uh, you're, this is not only a barrier for COVID-19, but it's a barrier for almost anything else as well, it sounds like. Right, absolutely. And, and you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I've been, as you know, <laughs> Nick and I are both over 60 years old, okay? And I've been in, <laughs> yes. practice, I've been in practice for, since 1978, and I have missed, in that total time, I've missed three days for being ill in that whole time. Um, and so I'm fortunately, I'm blessed with, I guess, a very good immune system. And perhaps it's partly because just, you know, we're constantly um, um, somewhat exposed to this from our patients. And so um, we're, we're, we're doing really well. And, and again, um, oh, very good. Um, and, very and, good. And, and so these other things, though, and I, I've never, fortunately, thank God, I've never had a patient come back to me and say, you know, I went to your office and I got the flu afterwards, you know, or I had this. And I've never had that happen. And so I think that even what we've been doing in the past has been quite adequate. But just, you know, a little bit extra isn't a bad thing. And if it makes everyone no, feel a little not. better. Let me, let me interrupt for a moment. Sure. Being out of time here. Uh, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here. We're going to come back with Dr. Carl Hedge and talk about dentistry in the COVID era. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland, to The Advocates. This is our final segment for tonight. We're talking about dentistry and uh, catching up on our dental care that we need that we've been putting off for a couple of months here due to the COVID-19. We're talking to uh, uh, Dr. Carl Hedgie, a, a dentist and also sponsor of The Advocate. We thank him for joining us tonight. Dr. Hedgie, thank you for joining us. You're more than welcome. Thank you for having me. You know, as we're all on pins and needles over this uh, COVID-19, that's all we seem to think about from morning to night. And maybe some of us wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it. But uh, life has to go on, and we're, we're coming out and um, catching up on some of those things that we canceled over the last couple of months, and we're talking about dentistry. And as we are talking in the last segment about dentistry, um, you guys in dentistry have been dealing with open mouths and saliva and aerosol uh, droplets from the human mouth for years. I mean, that's part of the business. And uh, when we, we talk about uh, what a patient's obligation is, when a patient shows up and schedules an appointment, how much should the patient be telling the doctor or the scheduler about uh, how they're feeling and what kind of question checklist maybe uh, they're going to be expected to answer? Right. Well, I, I can just share what, what we do is when a patient calls for an appointment, at the time of that initial call, um, my receptionist will go over a questionnaire, and I, I won't ask all the questions. I won't go over all of them because there's about 20 of them she asked, but things like do you have a fever or felt feverish, do you have a cough, shortness of breath, and so on. Have you been exposed to anyone over the last 14 days who has the, the infection? So she goes through a series of questions at the time of the appointment. Then she goes over those questions again the day before the appointment, and then she goes over those questions with them at the time of their appointment. So initially when they come in, 
there, you know, they're, they're waiting in the parking lot. When they're called in, she will ask those questions with, with them, and then she will take their temperature and immediately escort them to the, uh, to, the, uh, to the actual treatment room. But the one thing to keep in mind, and I mentioned to you a little bit during the break there, was the fact that even back in the 80s, our, our mission has always been to treat every patient, every single patient, as if they are infected. Not only, not only with uh, the coronavirus, but we expect that like, everyone has hepatitis, that everyone has HIV. So uh, the standards by which we treat patients is, is kind of like guilty until proven innocent, and we really can't prove them innocent, or we can't prove that they, they don't have these problems. So no matter, you know, no matter how benign or how healthy they appear, we still proceed with the assumption that they are infected, not just with the, you know, the coronavirus, but with these other pathogens that we've dealt with for many, many years. You know, when we talk about the different procedures, talking about the high-risk procedures, is teeth cleaning one of the highest uh, yes. risk? Yes, it is. And, and But specifically, we mentioned in the earlier segment was the fact that, that with the ultrasonic, and if, I think most of your listeners probably know, that's the thing that kind of, kind of buzzes, and says, you know, when they, they use that to remove the tartar or the calculus from the teeth. Right, right. And also the little, we call a profi-jet, which is like a little mini, almost like sandblaster that is used to remove um, stain and, and, and soft debris from the teeth. Those are extremely, extremely um, dangerous, I guess you would use the word, in, in, in the fact that they take a lot of whatever's in the patient's mouth and they just spread it all over the place. You know, I mean, they're just a, there's a zone of whatever bacteria, whatever microorganisms are in that patient's mouth as a result of those two um, methods of treatment are, are you know, are, are, they're, they're spread all over the place. So that's why we, we've banned mm. that from our office. You know, we're only using, you know, hand instruments and the old low speed, which have, you know, very, very, very low incidences of, of what we call volatilization of the, of the microorganisms. So if someone's going to come in uh, nowadays, in COVID, post-COVID days, uh, can they expect then that uh, their teeth cleaning will be done with, like you mentioned, the uh, the old typical standby dental instruments where there's going to be um, manipulation of tools in your mouth and it, it won't be the ultrasound kind of thing. That is my policy. And I think that is generally the recommendation of the Ohio State Dental Board. You know, like anything, there are individuals out there who are um, um, don't necessarily always follow the rules. And, you know, to be honest with you, what we've tried to always be a policy is not just to be make sure that we're following the letter of the law, but to do what we know um, from our understanding, from our research, from our training and our experiences, what is safest. And there's no question that the use of those instruments, the, the ultrasonic and the, the profi-jet, the little mini sandblasters, those are extremely dangerous to use. And so, you know, all this nice equipment is just kind of sitting there idle for the, for the time being. So, yes, I mean, and are there individuals out there doing that? I'm imagining probably yes, but, you know, I think it's dangerous. That's my opinion. Well, and it sounds like it's most dangerous for the uh, for the staff, for the uh, hygienist yeah. and the people yeah. in that room. And, uh, and, and for other people who come in also, uh, and which brings me to another question, is that between patients, uh, how has your uh, policy or practices changed as far as wiping things down and maybe doing something to make sure the aerosol virus is not there for the next patient? Well, well, very good. Well, first of all, we've used a, a surface disinfectant that uh, has been proven to be very effective against 
both uh, bacteria and viruses. And one of the unique things about a, a dental environment and cleaning up is it's not just a matter of if you were to look under a microscope, it wouldn't be you'd see these little bacteria on the countertop. What you'd see is a little piece of saliva or a little drop of drop of blood, and the bacteria in there. And a lot of the sanitizers don't really are not really effective to get that. We call the bio burden. And so we found, not we, but dentistry has found, and some of the researchers have found that the best disinfectants are those that are a combination of ethyl alcohol, you know, the kind we drink, you know, but ethyl alcohol in concentrations of over 60% in combination with chlorhexidine. And chlorhexidine is something like a surgical scrub when you see the surgeons scrubbing their hands before uh, procedures. On top of that, as I mentioned earlier, we are now using also the hypochlorous acid, and the hypochlorous acid is a fogger. So we will fog the room between each patient. And that fogger is very, very effective at killing both bacteria and viruses. And it's, it's, it's extremely fast acting. It only takes about 30 seconds. So, and that's actually been kind of a neat thing that, you know, we, you know, we got it specifically because of the COVID-19 infection issue. But we're going to continue to use that ongoing because it's such an easy, effective, and safe way of, of, of getting all those nooks and crannies, you know, the places, how do you wipe... You know, how do you wipe in these little corners and how do you get stuff? Well, you fog it, you can get everything. And we also have um, ozone is another uh, substance that we've, we've used now. But even like using, like I use magnifying loops, you know, for seeing up close. How do you clean those? You know, you can't autoclave them. Well, we have, we have a little room. It used to be my old dark room in the office. And uh, I, I got an ozone generator. And ozone is extremely effective at killing, again, both bacteria and um, Viruses, and so we now call it the killing room. <laughs> we used to be the uh, the the, uh, the dark room, and so anything like even our shoes, we'll take our shoes off at night. We put those in there. We turn the ozone producer on for thirty minutes, and we come back in the morning, and we know that everything that's there is safe. And just little things that have you know, this has kind of awakened us to a lot of things that we maybe should have been doing before. So between patients, like between patient one yep. and patient two. Uh, what, what's done to the, the area? Is it like wiped down or something? Like yes. The, the it's wiped, or anything? Wiped, wiped and fogged. And also we so that all the okay. the fogger The fogger, again, is that, the hypochlorous acid. And so, um, and, and those combinations are both very fast-acting. They both are able to kill at a very high rate, uh, a very high level of, of effectiveness within, you know, one to three minutes. The hypochlorous acid is only about 30 seconds. So... Um, so it actually makes it actually made things really pretty easy. It's not a difficult process, um, mm-hmm. and we use barriers. We we put physical barriers wherever we can, mm-hmm. coverings. You know, we we use on our chairs. We use um, the bags from laundromats. You know, they use that when you get your shirts and things from the laundromat. They have these big bags. Those fit very nicely over our chair, and we've been using those for years. But now the again the incorporation of the only thing that's really new is we have the air purifiers in each one of our rooms. So it, that dramatically reduces the amount of of organisms that will actually ever make it to the ground or to the a countertop or a surface, and then we have the um, the wipe down with the uh, ethyl alcohol and um, uh, chlorhexidine, and then we have the fogger. So we're trying to hit it from a lot of a whole lot of different angles. First of all, barriers as much as you can, and then wipe down everything you can and fog everything you can. And it's kind of like probably a little bit of an overkill, but everybody feels good about it, you know. And it's it's not that well, difficult uh, to do. I don't think. Yeah, don't skimp on the overkill. Yeah. Well, uh, no matter, for our listeners, no matter who your dentist is, uh, you now know a little more about what's going on, at least at Dr. Hedgie's office, and feel free to talk to your dentist about these things and uh, be comfortable and, and go out for that. Well, 
Dr. Hedgie, thank you so much for joining us and uh, giving us some insight into how we can get our dental work done and still be safe and protected from the COVID-19. You're, you're very welcome, Nick. And just as we talked off air, no matter what we do, you know, we might get sick, but, you know, we, we have to keep living. We have to keep moving on and living and just do everything we can and keep ourselves as safe as we can and, and, and hope for the best. That's it. Uh, stay safe is our big thing. Dr. Hedgie, thank you again. And thank our listeners for listening tonight. Uh, we'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to